RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight and honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. As you can probably hear from the background noise, I'm by the sea on a gloriously sunny summer's afternoon here at Broadstairs in Kent, where I've travelled to meet today's guest, the graphic designer and typographer Derek Birdsall. For five decades, he operated from London's Islington, producing a stream of beautiful work that adhered to his guiding modernist principles. But a few years back, he decided to permanently close the book on that aspect of his life. He now whiles away his time reading, sketching, following his sporting passion cricket, or observing the comings and goings out to sea from his front room window, and always with a glass of chilled something close to hand. I first asked him why he had packed it all in. Okay, no, I gave up five, four or five years ago. I just, it was very strange, because in our business, you know, you don't retire really, they're really like actors. You, you retire when the phone stops ringing. But I had this big job promise, big book on Peter Lanyon. Yeah. And the guy right in said, finally, Dad, it's ready. And uh, I just said this, this was about five years ago. It was like a light switch went off. And I said, you know, really, I'd bring John, my ex-assistant, John Morgan. I said, bring John. And it was a big book, it's 22 grand or something. Quite a job. And I, what it was, I suddenly got totally tired of other people's problems. And of course, graphic design is essentially other people's problems, or ought to be. I was well, we were well enough off, thank Christ. Also, I'd never known what it was like to be out of debt. When we sold our, our factory to my son, Jesse, we were out of debt for the first time in our lives. I, I had 180,000 overdraft when we sold that factory. I'd been in debt all, we'd been in debt all our lives. Partly through helping the kids, but partly just... I remember meeting Colin Forbes, who I sort of grew up with at Central. I remember coming down to... I think it was some, somewhere like Sheerness with him. His mother had died, and he'd come to sort out her house. And I remember him telling me he got 27000 Quite a lot of money in those days. 60, 62, 63. He said, do you know something, Derek? He said, I reckon I'm making more money out of my mother's house than I will ever make out of graphic design. And I think it was more or less true. But you, you do. I mean, I was pretty successful, but I never got past that sort of... I remember thinking at one time, I made about 10% more each year, which was comfortable. Well, compared with today. Well, so you retired because you'd I lost just, patience? I, just, I, I suddenly realised that I didn't have to worry about other people's problems anymore. And on balance, I was willing to trade that for the, for the pleasure, clearly, that one got out of designing. And once you... In graphic design, anyway... Once you've lost the parameter of other people's concerns, mm. you don't have any. No, no, you've got to have no some You've got to have a brief. You've got to have a brief, otherwise we don't <laughs> function. <laughs> you've got to have a brief, and you've got to have a deadline. Well, look, what I'd like to do is I'd like to 
turn the pages back to your early life. Um, you were born in 1934, yeah. just a couple of years before the Second World War, in Nottingley near Pontefract, Yorkshire. Yeah. You had two brothers. What was it like back then? We were not well off by any means, but it was a pleasurable existence. I mean, my father was taken off to an asylum when I was 11. That was quite a blow. But my mother, who was an amazing lady, she got the job of a caretaker of a little primary school, a caretaking, and she sort of conned the local council into giving her the job on the basis yet two sons. I think I was by then 13 and my eldest brother was... Oh, my youngest brother was 10, I was 13, my eldest brother was 16. On the basis that she... It was supposed to go to a married couple. And she said, I don't need... You know, I don't need a husband, I've got all these boys. Yep. So, bless them, they gave her the job. So we had this quite delightful little cottage next to the primary school, which I went to, I'd been to. So that, And there was playground, empty all weekend, we had, and mates were quite pleasant. And though we were poor, we were... No, I don't ever remember being hungry. I don't ever remember being unhappy. Well, you were obviously bright, because you... To grammar school, so you must have passed yeah, your eleven I, plus. I, I honestly think I partly got into grammar school by fraud. At the start of the, my grandfather had a copper plate a, a writing book, mm. which he used to let me read, look at copper plate writing. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So that, that's when I first found a fondness for lettering, ornate lettering in those days. And I remember quite clearly, I broke my nibs, all pen and ink in those days, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the exam. And I could have a new nib piece. So I got a brand new nib. You have to suck the wax off. And I wrote copper plate. I mean, it, I know, now, I can remember now, it was beautifully written, my exam paper. Really? And I'm sure that was well on the way to okay. getting a good mark. I was going to ask you, you know, with so many designers that I've met and interviewed over the years, there was all these, this natural ability to express themselves visually, yeah. drawing. Yeah. Was that the same with you? Yeah, I could draw. I could draw quite well, but I, when I got to art school, I was probably the worst drawer in the class. You know, cause really? Compared? Well, they're the, the whole of Yorkshire to choose from. And I had from one village, 10,000 people, a small town. And you suddenly turned from being Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo to, you know... You, well, you eventually went to Wakefield College yeah. of Art, and there you, you know, were taught calligraphy, yeah. lettering, clay, yeah. modelling, history of architecture... You also oh, yeah. far, uh, nine uh, subjects you had to do for the intermediate, and I gather that one of your fellow students there was David Story, the yes. writer. And this is interested me. You're only fifteen-ish yeah. around there. It's uh, you know I read in your own book that you bought an Adana flatbed printing machine yeah. with type. Really, at yeah. that so oh, yeah. It was five pounds, and uh, my mother contributed. And it was it was a machine they'd used in the shop for doing price tickets, and they didn't want it. And it was also in the window. It was a very primitive machine. It was the roller pulled across without any tension, so the inking was dreadful, but it was a printing machine. Nevertheless, you at that young age, you were fascinated yeah. by... Well, that was partly because in Wakefield, there was a printing department for uh, for composite. The unions were still strong in those days, and there were, the art students well, they weren't allowed anywhere near it, but uh, there was this big room, and I used to sit... And we used to have our lettering classes in there. Sign writing classes, actually, not yeah. lettering, yeah, sign writing. I know. And we were surrounded by all these rows of drawers. It fascinated. And when I got this printing press, I used to go to... I used to sneak into that room and stick for jobs. I, I did jobs with local ice cream. R.J. Lewis, I remember. And I went and I pinched R.J. Lewis. There was that 72-point gill out the nearest case of the door. Gill was the nearest case of the door. That's one of the ways I got my love of gill. It was Absolutely, the nearest, yeah. nearest case. So it was there that you... just of course, it was convenient. Uh, years later at the Central, Jesse Collins. This is uh, when you uh, were around 18, 52. Yeah. You, you moved to London. Yeah. yeah. 
So that was a big, oh yeah, big, big thing. Big, big. moving Around to London. Us. How did yeah. you find that? The move to London. I mean, well, I, it, that was pretty traumatic because in those days there was never any question of them finding accommodation. Which turned up day one, and you were supposed to find somewhere yourself. Pretty bad. I wouldn't want to put students right through that again. Found a B and B, would you believe, in Bloomsbury Street, first night. Then in, the next day, I heard about a war, uh, hostel in. Rosby Avenue. I got in there for six. So really, in in what is now a very fashionable area. Oh yeah, short walk to the centre. Interestingly, I mean, you were at Central under tuition of uh, Jesse Collins at a time when I know Anthony Froshard was there too and you were taught for a while by him. But interestingly, because I, you know, several years ago when it was the anniversary of um, the graphics to the Royal College, I was asked, would I write an essay from 90, about 1948 to 1960 because for some reason nobody seemed to no, anyway so I, I, I researched and I spoke to a lot of people including uh, Dennis Bailey and, yeah. and um, David Gentleman who were there straight yeah. after the war and what I was amazed by was that all of the MA students that went, you know, the postgraduate students that went to the Royal College at the time were all incredibly disappointed by the tuition they were getting at the Royal College, having come from Central, where yeah. it was much more exciting. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, typography yeah. was more dynamic. Yeah, the college and- had this laissez-faire attitude. It's true. The college, uh, the Central was quite disciplined in a, a friendly way. I remember at one point I was, I was depressed about it. And Jesse Collins got hold of me. And, you know that front hall in the Central? A bit like a church. And he stood, we stood looking at Kingsway. And trams were going by in those. Yes. And he said, Derek, he had a booming Welsh voice. Not unlike Dylan Thomas, actually. He said, Derek, out there are the barbarians. This is a chapel of good taste. Very good. <laughs> You stayed there, and uh, in fact, while you were there, when you were only 19, you married Shirley, your yeah. wife. I mean, that was quite door. quite a, a thing, you know, when students were... Well, she got pregnant for a start, and in those days... And also, uh, in those days, in the 50s... But she'd moved down six months earlier. Right. That was the norm then. People got married when they were 18 or 19. Oh, yeah. Well, know. people did everything when they were... I mean, Turner got, went to the Royal Academy School when he was 14. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. everything, it, 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 that has caused me to think quite a lot of the period. No, everything happened. 15, 15 was not unusual to make your mark in those days. Then, of course, came the inevitable, which is national service. Oh, yeah. Which, um, you know, so many people I've spoken to you know, had to endure yeah. national oh, service. Yeah. And the stories are always very funny. Now, from what I understand, you were assigned to the printing unit. Yeah. You also met Ross Kramer, yeah, who was at Saatchi right. later, and of course and Terence Donnelly. Donnelly yeah. they, 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 we were in the same unit. So you both, I mean, all of, sorry, I don't know whether you all went, but you were posted to Cyprus. That's right. Me where, and Ross Kramer. I, okay, where there was very little in the print department because yeah. there was nothing. <laughs> no, well, they just pulled out. At that point, Suez took place. Yeah. And they, I mean, it's chaos. That's why the, the printing department never occurred. So what did you do? We, we, I think it was Ross's idea. We were all really disgruntled. We mercifully weren't, weren't given any heavy tasks. Or so. We were in the ordinance anyway. That was mm-hmm. the printing unit. So that was really... you didn't I can't say I had a bad national service, no. except for being separated from... Which is, yes. Which, Shirley and, a, and our and your, youngest son. And your son. Today, I, wouldn't, I don't think it would happen. So you eventually return back to City Street, and you meet up with John Commander, who was the That's managing right. director of boarding Mansell. Yeah, absolutely. And he offered you a part-time 
Miracle Day. Job? No, not quite. Not quite. No. I wrote to a few people, as you did in those days. D- printers were quite a big source of freelance work for designers in those days. Because mm-hmm. p- clients didn't know about design. They'd just say, well, could you d- produce this for me to the printer? Yeah. So the printer had to get a design done. And of course, printers historically have been designers anyway. So I wrote to a few people. Philip Thompson, oh, yes. who'd been a mentor of mine at Central, got me an interview at, with Tom Woolsey. At Crawford's Town, Town Magazine, and I got offered a. Well, he was at Crawford's. Yes, then. of course. I got offered a job as a typographer because in those days typographers did the type on ads, specialising. And I got a, a job offer there, eight pounds a week. The same week, I went to see John Commander, who I took. To, he took to me straight away. I don't know, young lad from York, and he offered me Decker had just brought out boxed opera sets. Velpies, and they had a little book to go with them. And he, he the, the, the printer had been expected to get these. And he asked me if I'd do two of them, uh, four guineas each. In those days, it was all guineas, you remember. And I, my brain snapped, and I, I did them overnight. I went straight home, did them. Took, I, I delayed a day, I was cunning. I didn't say, didn't ring John up the next day and say, I've done them. I waited a day, and he was very impressed and liked them. And they were great, very successful. I went on to do several. But I suddenly realised that if I could do, if I could earn eight guineas, in an evening. That was a lot better than eight pounds a week. So, with Shirley's blessing, thank Christ, I never took a job, never had a job since. It's just that Yorkshire economics. You know? Yeah, of course. We also, I think, did the occasional teaching slot oh, at yes. Central. That was a bit later. I did, uh, my first teaching was at London, London College, Printing. London School of Printing. Yeah, as it yeah. was in those yeah. days in Clerkenwell. And then, of course, I think with Balding and Mansell, they gave you a little there were a whole group of you there was George that's May- when about that time George Dolby George Mayhew Peter uh-huh. Wilber yep. and me yes who knew each other from the central yeah George had taught me actually George Mayhew yeah got the idea of forming a group and uh, John offered us their loft which wasn't being used top floor Bloomsbury Place and uh, so we started this group and it was we- a sort of super group really if I think about it at the time, because... Well, we were sort of, I guess, top equal with Fletcher Forbes came, Gill came a year or two later. Fletcher was then in part, uh, had been previously in partnership with the same Peter Wilder and Arrow Bertram, FWB partnership. I think if you think about the period, which, uh, I mean, you all sort of surfaced at a really exciting time mm. in, in this country, particularly, when, if you think that everything was changing, almost every creative era, film... Theatre, oh, yeah. photography, art, music, course, architecture. You didn't know that. I mean, no, no, no. It, but it, it, well, it, it, was, it was. It was just. It seemed so natural. Yeah, I mean, it, it became seem... recognised by the rest of the world very quickly. America, yeah. particularly, they. And of course, of... in those days, the numbers were very small. I mean, probably. I mean, the number of graphic designers that could be named by it would probably be Henry and James Eckersley, Levitt, him, and then you struggle. Exactly. And that is the... I and think that the next... Yeah, we were, I suppose, the next generation, but one. We were... On, there were only a dozen or 15 of us. I, I always think of you and Fletcher and, and that little tight-knit group as the ones that were pushing the edges out, you know, because you've mentioned um, Abraham Games and so forth, and they, although they, they were very well-known, their work was still rooted in a sort of earlier period. Very English. It was centre-type. Schlager was, was the few, one that... Bridge the gap. He yes. was international. Yes. And nice to revere. We revered Slager's work. 
and Philip t- and I particularly. And Tishold, of course, had converted over to classicism. And he'd yeah, gone he'd from gone the other way. He'd, he'd sort of suddenly decided that modernism was actually... Well, maybe he was just bored, because he was one of the pioneers. Yeah, my, my own... I don't remember... I mean, I, I remember knowing that we were modernists. I mean, I remember knowing that Anthony was very influenced by Chico. I've learned more of that since. And, of course, I was very influenced by Anthony, yeah. who, among most things, told me... I hated woolly thinking. You know. Yes, you don't want to think, which of course is what universities are supposed to do. Yeah, to think, and I, I was able to turn thinking into typography. Yes, you know, there's a kind of natural link with text, yeah. thinking, type markup, visualization, and also you, which you've maintained. I mean, okay, you told me at the beginning. Now you've retired, but throughout your career, you had it seemed to me honed in on a group of typefaces that meant a lot to you because this is my own theory that they'd served their apprenticeship they mm. were great typefaces they had their own and emotional you how dimension to use them. yes and you learned that it wasn't clever to use a typeface you weren't used to yeah until you developed an uh, 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 each typeface needed a certain kind of care and attention yeah and you can't just pick up a type book, choose a type. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. And having an affinity with the type anyway, yeah. which I'd had from central school, and I have to confess, most of my affinity for my early times was the central school composing room, yeah. which also you weren't allowed into, but I got into. Uh, you know, they had Valbaum, an extraordinary type, mm. wonderful type, mm. uh, which I'd never seen before. That polyphilus, yeah. which I'd never seen before. Yeah. So a lot of my early loves for type were based on what I saw and was able to... You were able to get work done in the comp room, but you couldn't go... You could, you'd give a layout and they'd set it. Is, is, it, is this because of union? union? Oh, yeah. yeah, it was union. the union. Oh, yeah. They were very tight. I, I did my thesis on the history of the Central School. The unions had the chance of absorbing graphic designers... Or typographers, or whatever, call them what you were. Yeah. In 1912 or 1914, and they turned them down. So I remember saying that all that time was wasted when designers could have been part of the industry. You know, which they later became. Mm. Uh, Spencer. Yeah. And us through Bowling and Maxwell. Yeah. And later Western. While you were um, with your little cohort of mm. designers with um, your own group you established you you'd obviously thought carefully about actually promoting graphic designers oh yeah london-based oh, yeah. graphic designers that were like-minded yeah and so out, out of that came 17 graphic designers london which yeah. is a actually a very important book it's very important because it was a forerunner, really, to DNAD. Mm-hmm. In fact, John Commander oh, certainly was. was the first president of DNAD. And when I look at that book now, and I look at the first DNAD annual, the same people are in it. Okay, yeah. They're advertising yeah. people. The graphic people were and very... And the work stands evident. up quite well. It, it, actually, I, I have all DNAD annuals, and the very first one I actually bought, I remember it was a lot of money, the black and white one with the apples, and I look through it even now today, and I I get excited by yeah. it 
And it's just in black and white. Yep. That's the weird thing. It's in black and white. You look through it and you get excited. Well, it, it, it is, that's interesting in itself, you see, because I remember seeing Paul Wren's work for the first time in Thoughts on Design yes. in the Central Library. Yes. Yes. The Central has a brilliant librarian. Yeah. He got Print Magazine. He got TM. I mean, can you believe that? Yeah. He got TM in yeah. 1952. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And he got Paul Wren's book. No, Paul Wren's book was all in black and white. Yes. But it translated. Yeah. You didn't need the cut. No, you didn't. It's almost like black and white films. Yeah. If they're good... And black and white photography. They work. They're special. No, I agree with that. I think, you know, the, uh, black, seeing things in That's black it. and white is a Somebody very good... You should do a thing on that one. It is a strange paradox that colour was a kind of icing. You don't need colour. Yeah. You don't actually need it. I was doing some layouts for a book for Frank, by Frank Auerbeck, and he came out of the studio, and, and I had all these black and white prints, and he said, I wish I could paint like that. There were black and white prints of his own paintings. Yeah. And interesting. Yeah. Well, I I always think that actually when designers, graphic designers, are restricted, Mm. when a client says, we haven't got them, this is not so much now, but back in the 60s and 70s, they'd say, we we can only afford two colours. And you think, great. (laughs) Two colours. Because, basically, it concentrates the mind and it it makes you more inventive. Of course it does. These days, you can have as much colour as you want. Some of the most brilliant uh, exercises... We did. I, don't, I think they came from the continent. You had to design an invitation card, same copy. You had to design it three times. One, all the same size of type. One, all in the same type. One in the same size of type. One using bold and one using color. Well, what a brilliant exercise. Yeah, still should be the yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, that of course, of course. I mean, everyone's got the whole box of tricks now. You can't do that. I agree. I'm, I'm and having forward. learned to do that, you learn... Uh, Parsimony, you learn to be very careful. I remember learning, still, I still have a hatred of italic capitals. Because it's annoying. Capital, what, what, do you, what do you need italic for if you've got capitals? Yeah. Your early work, as, along with so many of your contemporaries, Penguin was a big source. Oh, yeah. And oh, they were. I remember Alan Fletcher telling me when I interviewed him a long time ago that between the three of them, Fletcherford, they used to argue who was going to do the next Penguin. Next yeah. Penguin, because yeah. it would come in and yeah. they'd all argue yeah, about yeah. it. And you did a lot of work mm. for Penguin. I mean, you were working for Penguin from the f- yeah. late 50s right through to the 70s. Yeah. Well, and again, John Curtis, who came to see yes. me, took a shine to me, and we got on very well. And I did good work for him. And then later, David Pelham and I struck up a relationship. Did you ever work with Jumano Fischetti? Only once. I can't remember what it was now. But Gimano was a bit like... He was a great supporter of Romek, mm. Marber. Yes. You see, so that was... He was his baby. And Romek and Marber reminded me, which I didn't know. He and I did competing grids for that. I didn't realise I'd done a grid. I didn't know that. That's an interesting... I'd love yeah. to see what you, what you produced. So would I. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably in the archive of Penguin, I should think. That would be a very interesting thing to see. Well, if you ever find it, I'd love to see it. Well, I'll, I'll check that out. You also, of course, uh, you worked on the second Pirelli calendar. Yeah. And glamorously, instead of, like uh, Fletcher Forbes and Gill, shooting in Tide Park, you went off to to Morrow. Well, that was Robert... Freeman? Freeman. Yeah. Robert Freeman's idea. Yeah. He took my breath away and he took Pirelli's breath away. Yeah. He said, May, you can't shoot in England in March. Could have done in March. No, we'll go to Mallorca. Surely came. Simon, our second son, or Jesse three months earlier and I thought it's a marvellous opportunity for Shirley to get away so Pirelli agreed 
we bought, we took a villa, I mean Pirelli, they were brilliant. Rented a villa, sort of three models, and we did well over time. But that was Robert. And he'd be, he was the Beatles photography. So. Yes, I know. And I rang, this is my naivety in those, I rang Colin and I said, I need, I need a photographer. They've given me the cut. He said, yeah, I know. I said, can you recommend a photographer? He said, well, the guy just done our picture, like the Beatles, the one of Fletcher Ford and Gill in Polenix, which is one of, yeah. which is a copy of a Beatles cover. I said, ask him. So I rang Robert. Robert and I got on very well. Robert had been a bit of a graphic designer in his university days, was very knowledgeable. And uh, he, it was him who came up with the astonishing idea of him in New York, then became Norm. You found Hyde Park. In, in March in, in England. Well, that obviously turned into a phenomenon because, you know, I think it stopped. I don't know if they still do it. It was a big gap and then they reintroduced it. I don't it. know whether they still do it or not. Moving on, you, after the Pirelli, you, had, you got this incredible project. Which, it lasted for 20 years, which was the Mobile Pegasus magazine. Yeah. And you art-directed uh, other magazines also. You, you, you were, uh, briefly, yeah. You art-directed Town Before Dennis Bailey joined yeah. them. And when I you kept the seat warm for David. Yes. Dom. And and Dennis had got the job. Yeah. He couldn't come. He was in Paris. Paris. Six months, so I kept his seat warm. And you were invited to Twent to do yeah. a, a spot Six there. And then, of course, Nova. Yeah. After Harry um, Pacinotti. Right. Well, to my eternal shame, Dennis Hackey, who I'd worked with as a copywriter, yes. rang me up one day and said, I'm going to fire Pacinotti. If I do, will you take over for a few ones till I get somebody else? And I regret yeah, <laughs> I should have rung Harry, actually. But, I but of course, then Harry and I became great friends. Yes. And you what, it was a great moment for Harry. Yeah. Because having been fired from the magazine as art director... He became the photographer. He became the noble photographer, photographer. Working with him, Molly and me. Yeah. And I mean, brilliant. I mean, actually, brilliant photographer. I... I I remember when Nova... That made it. That made it. I yes. Mean, yeah. I remember Nova appearing, and it was before Nova. It has to be said he wasn't a bad art director either. No, no. I was going to say, uh, the thing about editorial design, putting town to one side and Wolsey and so forth, but you would look to Twen. You'd go to the oh, yeah. old Compton Street... Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Continental News Agent, and buy it. And yeah. then suddenly and Nova appeared, yeah. and it was our... Yeah. Twin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a nice story about Twin. It was done by a couple of copywriters, and they got Willie Fleckhouse to do the design, and they took the dummy around to raise money. Mm. And uh, they finally got some money, and they printed the dummy. There was a stupid article. Ubo Voos, I think his name who I worked with later at the magazine, said there were stupid articles. Yes. Just put in for fun, you know, for, for a dummy. Yeah. They printed them. Yeah. <laughs> I bought it. Of course, couldn't speak German at all. It's a oh, visual feast. Oh, of course it was. You looked it was, at the... It was a wonderful combination of Swiss typography and mad design. Yeah, and uh, Heinz Endelman's illustrations and uh, Hans Führer. Um, oh, and, absolutely. You know, so many great... And it's from, it's from uh, Willi. I got this great uh, quote. I said, admired layout he'd done for uh, uh, an article on Yves Montand. And the opening spread was an actual size hand with a, a gitan. You could see the gitan logo, cigarette. And above it, it just said Eve. That alone. Ah. But that was double spread opening. Yeah. And I, I remember, and I said to him, that was, he said, well, sister, Derek, I learn. If you get bad pictures, you make them very large. If you get ter- if you get unusable pictures, make them even larger. <laughs> and he just found this hand. The layouts in... 
Twain looking at them now. Oh, oh absolutely. Fantastic. And the gravure. Yes, that, absolutely. The quality of that gravure. The black is you know, sort of wonderful. Well, moving on, you you eventually parted company with all your buddies and you set up in uh, Covent Garden. Yeah. And you joined forces with Derek Forsyth, who used, was yeah. the manager... The, he was the advertising manager. Manager for Pirelli, yes. And I think, uh, from what I understand, you eventually felt that you were more or less being forced into a kind of a manager almost, rather yeah, than, well, rather than doing so what you wanted the hands we got so on. so busy and he started taking a great interest in design and commissioning design getting the assistant to do which I couldn't take that was my other traitorist thing when Forsyth asked me leaving Pirelli and he had the Pirelli account would I join me I said yes he was, and I, years later I met Colin at his farewell party and he said whatever made you join with Forsyth I said greed well, actually, on that point, you mentioned Colin Forbes, yes? That's who you were yeah. talking about. Is it true that you were approached by Fletcher Forbes? And oh, Gil yeah, when, when Gill left. Yeah, to join them. Yeah, when Gill left, Theo Crosby, who joined them there by then, Alan and Colin came to see me at Bloomsbury Place and asked me if I'd join them. And I'd just got this lease on this studio in Covent Garden with a flat above. Shirley and I were having our problems, and it was a great... I'm so relieved to this day I didn't take it. But I said, look, I've just got the studio in Covent Garden. I'm going to go on my own. I want to be on my own for a bit. Yeah. I like the idea of being on my own. Uh, I'm sorry, you know. So I didn't take them up. And I got the studio in Covent Garden. And I you continue with the name Omnific, which... No, I started. That's when I... Yeah, it would stay here. We started Omnific with Forsyth. With Forsyth. And I kept that name, yeah. And just for the listeners, Omnific, the meaning... All creating. All creating. Yes. I looked at... I decided that names beginning with O and Q were kind of smart. I don't know why. So I went through a dictionary looking through O and Q. Came across this, that, the other. And I saw omnific, all creating. I thought, well, well, well. A, a little later, when you became... You were very much in control of your own destiny. You had two further partners. You had Alan Kitchen. Yeah. And you had Martin, Martin Lee. Lee. Yeah. Now, Martin Lee, interestingly was a production manager. Yeah. And that was quite interesting move, really. And, of course, Alan was very much typographer very good at that time. And you, books became your, uh, really a large part of your yeah, work. Yeah, books absolutely. became a staple. Part, partly through mo- mobile, mobile, yeah. who started doing spin-off books. I started doing spin-off books for. And by then, I'd started working with West Press. And Martin worked at Western Press. Mm. He was their production director. And Westrom at the time were the printer. Well, I remember yeah, right. They, they, were, they were very... Yeah, they were. They, they were, were sympathetic to designers yeah, and exactly. understood. They'd taken over the role of Bowling Mansell, really. And just moving on, a little later, you, you... I don't know whether it was a gap between Alan Kitchen leaving and coming back or what, I'm not quite sure. But Alan, um, you actually was instrumental in encouraging Alan to get more involved in letterpress. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I got the idea that I'd like to have a letterpress set up. So I got Alan and I, Alan, I consulted with Alan, and we ordered a shitload of stuff from Stevenson Blake, who was still supplying it. That was Founders Time. They were in oh, Fleet, yeah. off Fleet Street. Uh, I remember them well. Futura, Futura, Valba, all Founders Time. 
and uh, they had one or two proofing machines left. They were still selling letterpress to the third world. It's ironic that one of the great beauties of printing was tip, you know, like little third world. Um, I bought a whole stock set. Nice composing room, all brand new. Mm. Which is great. Bella do that, you know, order from a catalogue. And after about a few months, Alan said he'd like to go on his own. I remember we'd started building a wall, my son, my second son, had started building a wall in the studio for Omnific that side and me this side, because I was sort of on my own a bit. And I, the wall had got to about that high. And Alan said, I want to go on my own. And I, 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 I almost hugged him. I knew what he meant, because he'd never been happy as a designer, designer. He'd never been happy. You can't shovel shit up, Bill. Yeah. was one of his great amounts. I almost hugged him and uh, ended up selling him all at that cost. I said, you'd have, you'd have the lot. And I think whilst you were, for a, a, not a long time, but you were a lecturer at the Royal College, mm. you encouraged them to take on Alan as the... That's when I got the professorship. Yes, exactly. For a year. Yeah. And that's when I... Harry, the old letterpress guy, was retiring. And I persuaded him to stay on for six months until Alan could take over. Yeah. And that was a great move, getting Alan in. Very good move. But actually, the side issue here, that I'd be interested in, if you want to talk about it, but you you were there for as Professor Graphics, but it came to a sort of abrupt end due to a confrontation with mm. Jocelyn mm. Stevens. What what actually happened? Jocelyn, in one of his those flights of fantasy that autocrats usually have, he said, Derek, how about in a big meeting? Always intimidating, all the professors there. And then, Derek, I think we should start our director's course. He was a big, you know, start courses, colonial. And to my eternal regret, I said, yeah, it's a possibility. I should have said no. So anyway, he then asked me to set it up, and I wrote a couple of quite good reports, one saying there should be two courses, one for advertising art directing, and one for editorial art directing. Justin didn't see that at all. Didn't see the distinction. And uh, at some point, I did this report, and at some point he called me. He said, this won't do. I said, what do I? He said, if you can't do it, I'll get some of you will. Who can? And then he said, I've got to go, I've got to go, I've got to meet you. He was always like that. So I sat there on my own in his office. So I went out, his secretary sat there. I said, Do you hear that? He said, Yeah, I did. I said, It's very serious, you know. She said, I know it is. So I went back to talk to Alistair Grant, who had got me into college in the first place. I said, I wouldn't put up with a client talking to me like that. You know, it's so interesting. You have these. Mm. <laughs> Milieus in which, and I mean, you would never allow a client to talk to you like that. I mean, you know, you have several standards according to the situation. Wrote to himself, I'm not leaving. I was sent to do it in a way, part mainly because of the students, but at the same time, there's sort of a bit of a relief. I probably shouldn't have done that job. Although I was glad I got Martin and, and Alan, of course. Alan went on great success after that. He was a natural teacher. Yes, and and he's sort of grown the printing work with that. Yeah. Now, uh, the other aspect of your relationships with people, which I've always found interesting, is um, 
the connections with some illustrators. So, for yeah. example, Michael Foreman, yeah. who worked with you on yeah. Pegasus, but also with book covers like the Philip Roth covers and so forth. That That's a nice thing. And also there's Philip Thompson. I think he's worked for you. And Ron, uh, Sanford. Ron Sanford, the other one. Is that because you rather like... Uh, you know, filmmakers, they have their cinematographer and their set designer. You felt that they understood you or you oh, no, loved their different. work or what? How did I, it? I think it's a bit different to that, eh? I knew very early on that there were certain things that illustration could do that photography can't. And vice versa. But not much vice versa. And so I began to get interested in illustration and realised that illustration can help you out on certain projects, certain magazine layouts and so on in a way that photography couldn't. And anyway, the variety. And I befriended Michael and Ron. And, and I enjoyed the delivery of the work yeah. and the yeah. discussion of the work. And mm. the, I remember ringing Philip once. I, I asked him to do a drawing for a, an architect on drawing board, redesigning Europe. That was my idea. And I rang Philip and asked, could you do something? So he sent me this rather tight drawing. It's good, but it was a bit tight. And I, as is often the case, I thought, well, maybe my brief, you know. So I rang him out and said, I hope you don't want to say so. I said, it's a bit ordered, a bit tight, a bit, I'd like something a bit looser. He said, well, I've got one of those. He went over the West Bay basket and said, I've got one. I'll send it to you. And he sent this crumpled, straightened out, crumpled drawing. It's perfect. Yeah, that's perfect. interesting because often those instantaneous sketches have got oh, a quality that absolutely and 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 he certainly i've always loved his for me he was a conceptual illustrator yeah. he had ideas i mean i always loved his stickers that he oh that produced boring. called boring you just, snail. you just stick them yeah, stick them snail. onto anything you find boring and i thought such a brilliant thing to do Particularly these days, there are so many boring things. One of the things you said to me in an interview way back, 16 years ago, was that the job of a designer was to make their clients happy and you should never force things down their throats. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Well, because, you know, there are a lot of designers who are kind of, that have this, this you're getting what you're given. Oh, I won't name names, but there's one or two still. A dis- an open distaste for clients. Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't name the name, but clients, clients that we are not living. I mean, yeah. And I've been accused of being a client's man. It's a accusation I take proud, I accept proudly. Hmm. Because I could see a client. I, I, I had one or two instances, because I seemed to have a way with myself of persuading a client to take a job he patently didn't like. And I just kicked myself out. It's not the right thing to do. You're never right to do that. It's the client's money. It's his work. It's his job. And I think... So I never got that. I never... You carry the client with you. In fact, it's quite an art to make the client see things your way. That's not quite the same thing Mm. as making him take things he doesn't like. Mm. Describing the problem to him whose problem it is, in such a way that leads naturally to what you've done, is quite an art. Mm. Um, Predisposing a client to something you've done is quite helpful. Because, of course, they're they're blind. They they don't work in your milieu. They haven't been sweating over it for three weeks. So you must 
Start at the beginning. Don't don't play Bela. Look at that, because they almost certainly not know what you're showing them. I mean, mm. they haven't been part of the process. And we're doing a, a job. I can't remember the job now, but yellow was a strong ingredient. And uh, the chairman said, "My wife hates yellow." And I thought, "Well, that's that." I mean, <laughs> there's, there's really no point. I said, well, "It can be any colour you like." He said, "Really?" I said, "Yeah." George uh, Mayhew taught me that. He'd done a, in the days when, he'd done a reception area for a, 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 an advertising agency. And he'd done a red ceiling in the days when you did red ceilings. Don't like a red ceiling. And George said, famously, you can have any clear that. Which is one of the most disarming. I used to say that about typefaces, not quite me. No. Because you Not have quite. a very... Yeah. I see, as long I, as it's within I, this 12. I used to say, yeah. But it, it, it always disarms them, you yeah. see. Yeah, yeah. I say, you have any toughest you like, if you don't like that one. And George, and they said, and George said, you know, any colour you like. And they said, but you're the designer. To which he said, yes, and I say red. Now, uh, actually, again, going back to the original interview, when I came to see you in 2002 at your house in Islington... You showed me a pile of layouts at the time on a, a book, and you called it, you said, this is a book I'm working on, and it's called The Intelligent Book. That was your working title. Of yeah. course, eventually became that your, really what has become a definitive book, Notes on Book Design, and, you know, to my mind, it's the best book on the subject, really, of graphic design, and in particular books, since the book that inspired me, which is Joseph Muller-Brockman's The Graphic Designer and His Design Problems, yeah, which yeah. I found in the evening class library in the 60s yeah. that I went to. And, and for me, that your book should be a standard reading for more, more so these days because I see so many terrible mm. mistakes. So, Glad and grateful to you. I mean, it's really very good that you finally got that out and it's, Done. it's there and it's a standard work. Is there anything that you wish you'd done that you never got round to? I would have loved to... John McConnell has been to see me a couple of times. He also has long affinities with what says, it turns out. Really? Yeah. He's been to see me a couple of times. His daughter lives not very far away. And uh, he started working with... He's still working with the British Museum. And I remember saying to him, a job I really would have loved to have had would have been art director of the British Museum. You know, what a yeah, job that was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he said, You'd hate it, he said. <laughs> oh dear. The back stabs, the backstabbing, <laughs> the departmental uh, all of which uh, I can imagine. Well uh, is there a project, uh, one project that you you would think that typifies what you believe in and what you're most happy with? What 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 would you say is for you one of your best if you had to look back? Oh, the jobs I've done. Well, the, the, the prayer book was very rewarding, mainly because the client was so good. I mean, uh, not good, good. Uh, uh, receptive and cooperative and uh, interested. And it's in, it, 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 it fascinated me at how many of the clergy are interested in typography. I guess because the Bible has always been... Yeah, I interestingly guess, I, typographically I for guess, some weird I reason. I remember meeting Michael Foote once, just not long before he died, actually. And he said, uh, 
He was very profoundly deaf in those days. Then, what do you do? I'm a typographer, for want of a better word, you know. Oh, typography. Very interesting subject. Michael Foote. Yeah. Well, if you think about all those Labour Party pamphlets and yeah. things. Yeah. Well, just for the listeners, we, what we were just talking about was the Church of England's prayer book. Yeah. Um, and, in, and it also interesting, going right back to the beginning, the very typeface that you seconded on the way out of your... Yeah. Uh, was Gill. Yeah. And that entire book is in Gill. Yeah. So that's a, a nice moment to... We're rounding up to the yeah. end now. Yeah. Just if you had to give advice to a young designer, graphic designer, starting out today, what advice would you give them? To learn to do something well. I say that to all my friends' children. Learn to do something well. And then from that, other things will come. So, you know, learn to, learn to, do, learn to get type pro- properly set. Learn to get the spacing. Learn something simple. Mm. Learn it well. Mm. Get good at it. And that will give you confidence. Confidence is all. Okay. Well, Derek Bertel, thank you very much. <laughs>